Life After Stroke is a production of the Hang On to the Dream Foundation, the 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps kids and adults reach their goals in life. If these Life After Stroke programs are helpful to you, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Hang On to the Dream Foundation to assist the organization in its numerous outreach activities. For more information, just go to www.hangontothedream.org. And remember, no matter how hard things seem, hang on to the dream. This program is not to be used as a way to diagnose or treat any medical condition that you may have. Please consult your doctor or healthcare professional before making any changes to your current medical routine. Stroke. 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 It comes out of the blue, sometimes without warning. But those who survive it should never lose hope. A stroke can be life-changing. But it is also a new beginning. Because for all survivors... There is still a beautiful life after stroke. Hey everyone, welcome to a special edition of Life After Stroke. I'm Christopher Ewing in Los Angeles, and with us right now we have a very special guest. And I'm really just honored to have him with us. With us today is Dr. Mitchell Elkind. He is a vascular neurologist, professor of neurology and epidemiology at Columbia University. He is also the president-elect of the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association, and also since he works in New York City, he is also in the epicenter of the coronavirus here in the United States. Doctor, it is so good to see you again. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to see you, Christopher. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, you and I have kind of become uh, old chums now. You know, this is like the second or third time we've kind of done stuff together. The first one was during the International Stroke Conference uh, here in Los Angeles, where uh, you and I were guest speakers at uh, the luncheon there. And then also we participated in a very big podcast for the American Stroke Association just last week. And, uh, you know, you're just such a cool guy. And I just had to have you on the show just so that our listeners and viewers that watch our show on, on, uh, on the Stroke Channel and also listen to Life After Stroke could just kind of hear from you because you are the guy, you are the one uh, who just has so much great information, especially given everything that we're going through right now here in the United States. You know, obviously the topic today is on the whole COVID-19 virus and things like that. Um, And I kind of want to start off just really basic, just because, you know, put it in kind of lay terms for us. We've heard it called COVID-19. We've heard it called coronavirus. Which is it and what is it? Well, first, let me just say right back at you, Chris, in terms of uh, being a cool guy. So I'm thrilled uh, to be here with I'm you as, today. So thanks. I'm thanks for as, having not me. Not as cool as you, Doc. You are. I'm just the man sitting next to the man. You are the man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so let me, uh, let me just uh, answer your question there mm-hmm. about, you know, what, what do we call it and, and what does it mean, right? So um, the virus that causes this disease is a coronavirus. And... Uh, we are referring to the disease as coronavirus disease 2019 and abbreviated that becomes COVID-19. I think it's a terrible name for a disease. It's kind (laughs) of an awkward thing and I hate (laughs) saying COVID, but there's a really good reason why they're using that name. And that's because they want to make it uh, not specific to any one location or any one group of people. So if you think about 
serious pandemics we've had in the past, like people talk about the Spanish flu from 1918 uh, or the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, that occurred uh, several years ago. Both of those refer to specific places, and so they carry this stigma with them, which is, is a negative way to name a disease. This disease is worldwide. It's in uh, just about every country now, and um, it's much more appropriate to use kind of a neutral name. And so that's why that funny name, COVID-19, is what we're calling it. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, another word that's kind of entered our lexicon of recent that obviously has always been around, but we're finding ourselves using it more than ever is the word pandemic. You know, we've mm-hmm. obviously used epidemic. You know, we've heard that much more than we've ever heard pandemic. For those that are listening and watching, kind of define those two words for us as to how it fits into this whole COVID-19 thing. Sure, sure. So an epidemic is a disease outbreak that occurs in one particular area or maybe a couple of areas nearby. Um, A pandemic implies a disease or an outbreak that has spread across large parts of the world, many continents, which obviously is what we're experiencing now. So it was in, um, I think, March 11th or so, uh, you know, early March that the World Health Organization changed and and started calling this a pandemic because it was clear that this was a worldwide phenomenon at that time. And that's what's so scary about it. It is that it's going on simultaneously throughout the entire world. It's going on at different rates in different places. You know, we obviously see epicenters we talk about or hotspots of the disease. So there's more or less in different places, but it's really everywhere. And that is the big challenge, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the other thing is when it comes to COVID-19, um, you know, with it being, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I understand this to be primarily a respiratory disease, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, with COVID-19 uh, being considered a respiratory disease and stroke being considered a neurological condition, is having had a stroke still considered a pre-existing condition that puts a stroke survivor at greater risk if we happen to catch the virus? Unfortunately, it does um, in some ways. Not, not. I would say not every stroke patient is necessarily at increased risk. Um, there are certain things that do seem to make people at increased risk of getting the virus and at increased risk of having uh, a worse outcome if they do get the virus. Those include cardiovascular disease generally. So that includes heart disease and stroke patients, um, but also people with high blood pressure. And we, we think that just having high blood pressure may be a risk factor for this because of the particular nature of this virus. The way that it gets into the cells of the body is through a particular receptor called the ACE2 receptor. And people who have high blood pressure and who take certain medications may have higher levels of that ACE2 receptor. And so the virus has an easier time of getting into the cells. Um, And so that's why it does look like people who have uh, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, or take certain medications may be at, at higher risk with this condition. You know, it's, it's a funny thing, though, because you say this is a respiratory disease, and I would say absolutely the primary uh, problem with this virus is that it attacks the lungs, and that's why we hear so much about uh, severe 
acute respiratory syndrome and we hear about people needing ventilators and so forth, but it does seem to affect the heart, uh, other organs in the body like the kidneys or even the intestines. And there's even some evidence that it can affect the brain in some people. Fortunately, those complications occur in rare instances and in people who are the most severely affected, but it can happen. And, and that's one of the scary things I think about this virus. So true. So true. You know, I, um, I've heard that combating the COVID-19 virus to be something like battling a war. And, mm -hmm. you know, in most wars, one side knows they won the war when the enemy surrenders, you know, that type of thing. How will we know when the other side, which in this case is the coronavirus, um, how will we know that it has surrendered and we have won the war? Um, what are some of the specific markers that you guys in the medical community want to see before you declare the fact that everything's safe and kind of back to normal, if you will? Right. So in terms of markers, I think it's going to be um, it, it's going to be when we don't have as many cases coming into the hospital. Um, but even before we get to that stage, I think what we're going to want to see is testing. Right. And tracing, which is contact tracing and treatments, including a vaccine. So you could call it like the three T's. Right. Think of testing, tracing, and treatment. Um, and so I, I think we're, we need testing because we want to know how many people in the community actually have the virus. It's very hard to, with this particular virus, it's hard to judge just by how many people are in hospitals or, or God forbid, dying. Uh, we do know that there are a lot of people who seem to have the virus and have no symptoms at all, which is great for them, but it means they can be out in the community um, spreading it. They could spread it just by uh, speaking potentially or coughing or you know, breathing heavily if they're exercising and so forth. And then the virus can um, get into the air and if somebody's near them, they could pick it up. And, and that's why this spreads so aggressively. So we want to know, I think, what the prevalence, we would call the prevalence or the, um, the number of people in the community who have it, because that then allows us to see how big the problem is and focus on those people to separate them for at least a short period of time so they don't give it to, to other people. So those are the kinds of things that we'll want to do. Ultimately, I think most people agree that we need to have a vaccine to, uh, to really make headway against the virus and, and get people comfortable about going out. Uh, you know, there are lots of bad diseases in the world, but over the last century or so, we've been able to conquer them, you know, in this war against uh, infectious disease in general. We've conquered things like smallpox with vaccines, uh, influenza, polio, and so forth. So once we have a vaccine, we'll be in a much better position uh, and I think that's really going to be the key to defeating the virus. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what is really so alarming, especially for, you know, our generation, if you will, is that this is kind of like the first disease and, and epidemic and pandemic of, you know, our generation that is really like major, major. I mean, sure, there's been SARS and, you know, some of those other things that have happened, you know, during our generation, if you will. You know, and then there's obviously, you know, some people who will remember polio and things like that. But as you go back farther back, you know, those were really some major ones, too. 
have any of you in the medical community kind of um, ranked where this one ranks with some of the previous epidemics and pandemics that have happened in the world since the beginning of time? I mean, is there any kind of way to kind of stack all this up and see where this one ranks against some of the others? Sure. Well, ultimately, again, I think the way in which people tend to rank these is in terms of the number of people who suffer or die from them. Um, and many, many millions of people died in the Spanish flu years and years ago. Fortunately, we are in a very different time right now. Medical science has advanced tremendously. So I, I don't think we're going to reach that you know, severity of, of illness fortunately. Um, but this is a bad virus. We usually tend to think of these things in, I think, two different um, dimensions, if you will. One would be the ease with which it can be transmitted, because that tells us how many people get the virus, as well as the severity of the illness itself, or its case fatality, how many people who get the virus will die. And so you can imagine that something that is really, really bad and kills a lot of people, but doesn't spread very far, you know, that's a nasty disease if you get it, but it's not going to cause, you know, a, a huge problem throughout the world. That's kind of like the situation with that original SARS virus that came out in 2002. You know, there was an outbreak in China. It did spread to other countries. It was even a problem in Canada just because of travel that people, people brought it there. Um, and so that one, though, tended to have a very high mortality rate. It killed about 10% of people who got it, which is quite high. And although that's terrible, the, the um, kind of the, if you will, the, the good thing about having a high fatality rate is that most people don't spread it because they're very sick right away. They're in the hospital and uh, people are, you know, people know to stay away from them. Um, on the other hand, there are things like the common cold, which doesn't kill people, but spreads very easily. So a lot of people pick it up. Um, this virus is very similar, actually, to the other cold viruses or some of the cold viruses, which happen to be coronaviruses, um, in that it can spread easily and it can um, you know, kill a significant proportion of people. One big question has been, what is the proportion of people? What is that case fatality ratio or rate? Um, and people have estimated it to be about 1% or so, which sounds like a really small number. But if you think about 1% of our population of our country, that's a huge number of people. Uh, and so 1% is, you know, 10 times what we see with the, with the flu, for example. And so that, that's a really high number. It's also very different. That case fatality ratio depends on where you are. You know, what is the healthcare system like where you are? And is that healthcare system being overwhelmed? So that's why we talk about flattening the curve and why it's so important. If we had unlimited medical resources, doctors, ventilators, intensive care unit beds, then everybody could be cared for. The concern is that when all these cases happen in a short period of time, then we can't care for everybody. And so the case fatality ratio, the number of people who die from it goes up because hospitals are overwhelmed and 
we don't have enough uh, equipment to care for everybody. And that's when those, you know, those really nasty decisions have to get made about who, you know, who's going to survive and who isn't. And do we have enough, you know, protective equipment for the doctors and, and all of these things become so terrible. We could spread it out over a longer period of time. It'd still be terrible, but it wouldn't be as terrible, uh, you know, otherwise. I did see something where it said that one of the, you know, symptoms. Uh, some people are having strokes from the coronavirus. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Is that I didn't know that was even possible, huh? Yeah, we do see that um, the, this virus seems to cause um, damage not only to the lungs, but also to the heart, in rare instances, to the brain, perhaps the kidneys. Uh, and so it has a pretty um, diffuse effect. And there, there could be a lot of reasons for that. One is just that when pe- fortunately, this happens when people are more severely affected for the most part. And so when people are sick from any kind of illness, they could have secondary brain or kidney or other injury. So it may just be a kind of a measure of the severity of the illness. But there's also evidence that the virus can directly affect these other organs. Um, it can also cause a tendency of the blood to clot, so what we call hypercoagulability, uh, which can lead to blockage in blood vessels and heart attacks and strokes. You may have heard of this cytokine storm, which is like a really severe immune reaction against the virus. And in that case, the immune reaction may not only get rid of the virus, but it may damage the organs too. And so in that case, like the body's response becomes almost you know worse than the virus itself. Uh, and so we see that in a lot of people who are severely ill as well. Again, thankfully, that kind of thing is, is uh, you know, rather rare, um, but it does happen. And we're learning tremendous amount. Mm. You know, Christopher, I would say one other thing to bear in mind, especially for this audience of um, uh, people who, who've had stroke or may, you know, have family members and so forth with stroke, is that the the thing we don't think about so much is what happens to people who've had strokes or who are having a new stroke or a heart attack when there's a pandemic going on. And that's something that we as doctors and stroke specialists have been thinking about a lot. Um, We have seen the numbers of people coming into the hospital with stroke go down pretty substantially. And there's actually some some papers and um, reports out of China, for example, and Italy and Spain, which were a little bit ahead of us, of course, suggesting that the numbers may be about half as, as high as, as usual. We're seeing half as many strokes come in. And we don't know exactly why that is, but part of the reason may be that people are afraid to come into a hospital during a pandemic. They're afraid of being exposed, getting sick, etc. And what we really do want to let people know is that if you think you're having a stroke, if you think you're having a heart attack, you should be going into the hospital, call 911, go, you know, get an ambulance, go to the emergency room, just like you would have done before, because the adverse effects of not going in could be even worse. Um, And hospitals are now set up to separate people who might have COVID from people who don't. And so just as it always was, um, seek out help if you have an emergency. Oh my gosh, Doc, I tell you, you know, and you know, that was going to be one of my questions and it's just so 
amazing because, especially with stroke, because time is brain, you know, and you've got to get in there. And of course, you know, that's kind of going to be somebody's thought, I'm sure. And I'm sure it probably has been many people's thoughts is, is like, oh, gosh, you know, I got to sit in that emergency room with all those sick people that are coughing. I don't want to go in. But meanwhile, come on, you're having a stroke, for goodness sakes. You might be having one. Get in there, you know. So that's great advice. And that's also great to know that they do have some kind of a setup there prepared for that type of an emergency. So if somebody is coming in that the hospitals understand and they've got that covered. So everybody listening, everybody watching, you know, they've got that figured out already. So don't be afraid to get there. You you know, it's not like you're going to come there with a stroke and all of a sudden catch the virus necessarily because you went there for your stroke. You know, I I mean, I guess anything's possible, but, you know, the hospitals understand that and they have that kind of protocol in place to try to prevent that from happening. So just like you said, Doc, you know, you guys don't be afraid. If you think you're having a stroke, get your tail in there and get checked out. You know, even if you think maybe kind of sorta, you know, like you, you know, the headaches. You know, because I went in for a headache about six months mm-hmm. ago, and I thought, oh man, you know, I think I might be having another stroke. I had a hemorrhagic stroke originally. They always told me be careful of headaches. You know, if you think you're having a stroke, get in there anyway. You know, because just that that second thought of well, maybe it's not really a stroke. Maybe it's really something else. Get in there and get it checked out. I'm so glad you brought that up because. You know, there's a lot of second guessing that will go into all this, you know, and people figure, well, hey, you know, I'd rather have a stroke than just die of the virus. Well, heck, if you wait too long, you might die of the stroke. So, um, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a good thing to be aware of that. Um, hopefully, folks do have their regular doctors. Maybe your your listeners have a neurologist who's been looking after them as well. And so if you do have the time, certainly if you have, if you think you're having a stroke, you want to go to the emergency room. What we are doing a lot of right now also is telehealth, right? So um, I, for example, am seeing a lot of my regular patients uh, over video visits, you know, kind of like, just like we're doing now. And it's, it's sort of new to us to do that in the um, outpatient setting. Um, you know, we'd like to see people shake their hands, lay, lay hands on them and make sure they're okay. So it's a little bit different now, um, but we can evaluate people uh, over the uh, video, you know, using our smartphones and their phones. And um, I think we can do a pretty good job that way too. So if it is something a little bit less acute, be in touch with your doctor. They can still do a video visit. You don't have to go to the outpatient clinic to get your, um, you know, routine annual medications filled and that sort of thing. So that that is a really big change. And many of us think that that's probably going to continue going forward as well, that we'll be doing a lot more telehealth uh, it's it's very efficient and it will spare people, you know, the need to, to travel and so forth. We do think, you know, all the experts say that this is going to go on for a while. You know, even if we do get a vaccine, which we certainly hope and expect to, uh, that's going to be 12 to 18 months. That's what, you know, the uh, the uh, vaccine experts are telling us. You know, so much of what you're saying is is you know, kind of the the next thought that I have, which is us stroke survivors, you know, we've heard the phrase new normal, you know, ever since we Mm -hmm. had our stroke. And when you talk about shaking hands and things like that, after things go back to quote unquote normal, are things like continuing to avoid large gatherings and avoiding shaking hands and things like that, is that going to become the new normal that we, especially stroke survivors, should expect to have become a part of our lifestyle, at least for a while? Well, I think it's very hard to predict too far out into the future. 
I do think that for the next, as I say, 12 to 18 months, unfortunately, that will be part of the new normal. I think that all of us, not just stroke survivors, are going to have to be careful about um, social distancing, about going out uh, into public places uh, as, as little as we need to. And I think it will ramp back up gradually. We're going to have to monitor the situation. It won't be like flipping a switch and now we all go back to the way things were. I would like to think, that, and this is not a medical opinion, this is a personal opinion, that in a, uh, you know, a period of, um, I don't know, 18 months, perhaps two years, we'll have seen this disease disappear enough that we'll start to lead normal lives, yes. But I think until we have, you know, vaccines and really good treatments it's going to be hard to do that and i think people even once we have those kinds of things in place i would suspect people are going to be cautious uh, maybe not everybody but a lot of people and so it's just going to take a little while to get back to you know where we were before but um i do think that for folks who've had strokes or who have cardiovascular disease uh, a little extra caution is a good idea um, being a little bit more attentive to the social distancing, a little more attentive to washing your hands when you come back, to sanitizing objects you may bring in, you know, from the, the market and so forth, um, you know, making sure everything is, is really, uh, you know, ship-shape clean. And um, it, a little more attention has to be paid to those kinds of things. Um, I think for folks who've had... Uh, stroke or really any medical condition, it's a good time to make sure if you take medicines on a regular basis, have an extra month's supply, have an extra refill available just in case you can't get out, you're sick, you're quarantined, or, you know, God forbid the um, supply lines get slowed down or interrupted and it's harder to get medicines, have that extra security around. I, I think people will feel better about that. Hmm. Great advice. Today, the United States uh, has extended the uh, length of time that we should stay at home. And I, I think uh, if, if I remember correctly this morning, I heard that the UK did as well. Talk a little bit about the fact that some of us are sitting here stir crazy and want to get out again. Some people want to kind of push the clock a little and you can't kind of rush this thing. I mean, the time frame is really in the hands of the disease itself. I mean, you know, what do you think about the fact that, uh, you know, that there is the extension now of staying at home for yet another month and things like that? Well, many of us thought that that was going to happen. I think it was always um, a little bit unrealistic to think again that this was going to change so quickly you know two weeks we stay in and then boom everything is better and we go back certainly that's what we all want would wish for you know we we go to sleep and dream about that all night and then we wake up and you're suddenly pushed back to reality um so i think it's it's not unexpected uh it's it's going to be challenging in some ways because the weather's starting to get nice people want to be outside sitting in the park you know, picnicking, going out for dinner, sitting in sidewalk cafes. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's really hard to miss all that. Um, I think, though, that we, you know, we can take advantage to some extent of the parks that we do have, as long as people can practice social distancing. Uh, getting outside and getting fresh air is probably an important part of maintaining your, your mental and psychic health. Um, so I, I think it's okay to do those things 
wearing a mask, I think, is going to be very important. So when out in public, again, especially for uh, folks who, who uh, are at higher risk, as, as we've said, some stroke survivors are, then I think you're going to want to do that when you're out and about. Um, really try to limit it as much as possible. Um, it's going to be a tough balancing act. Uh, hopefully it doesn't go on for too long. We're starting to think about how we can open things back up eventually in a smart way. Um, we're just going to have to see how it goes and kind of take it one, I don't know, day, but one, you know, one week at a time and, and go from there. You know, CRISPR, I would say one of the silver linings of all of this is just the speed with which the scientific and the medical community have come together to study this virus. I was just on a call yesterday with colleagues from China. It was a joint, you know, U.S.-Chinese uh, conference call zoom meeting about the virus where they were sharing what they had learned and we're sharing what we've learned i think it's you know it's a it's a, a great thing to see people from around the world coming together to work on this problem and um that is how we will win the war is through science and uh, collaboration teamwork mm, man i tell you there's so many moving parts to this virus and uh it's great that you know, on the other side, you know, there's all of you doctors that are also moving parts that are moving together <laughs> and working yeah. together to counteract the moving parts of this crazy virus. Boy, boy. Yeah. You know, finally, you um, you gave us some great advice in terms of having an extra supply of medications, if possible, uh, on hand, just in case, you know, like you said, the pipeline slows down or whatever else. Is there anything else that we stroke survivors should absolutely do? I mean, you know, beyond the usual washing your hands a lot and stuff like that. Is there anything else that we stroke survivors should do um, just as an extra precaution, just because we are stroke survivors? Well, I think being in touch with your physician is a good idea. Um, letting them know your concerns uh, and um, uh, see if they have any other suggestions for, you know, everybody is different. Every stroke survivor is different. Strokes come in a lot of different categories and types. And so, you know, advice that's appropriate for one person may be different than that for another. So uh, although, as I said, it's hard to get into the doctor's office right now, you can still call, you can still have visits. Um, one thing that we say is that everybody's using this term social distancing and um, a nicer way of thinking about it may be physical distancing, but social solidarity. You know, we're really trying to be with one another, even though we can't physically be there. We want to support each other, be available to each other. We're all using various technologies to have uh, meetings and even parties, birthday parties, cocktail hours, things like that. You know, um, So getting in touch with the doctor, being in touch, even though you can't go in to see them, is probably one of the best things you could do. Mm -hmm. Man, Doc, it has just been so great to chat with you. Um, everybody listening, for more information on stroke, and especially as it pertains to the COVID-19 virus, just go to the American Stroke Association's website, which is stroke.org. And for the latest information on COVID-19 and the whole pandemic, uh, go to the Centers for Disease Control's website, which is cdc.gov. Doc, I got to tell you, you know, it, it has just been so great to get to know you over the past you know, month or so. You know, you and I have been able to kind of 
partner and connect on a couple of different things on behalf of the Stroke Association. And I'm just so honored whenever you guys contact me and say, hey, Christopher, you know, come hang out with us and be a part of this thing. I'm just so glad to know you. And congratulations on your appointment as being president of the American Stroke Association. I just think it's cool, man. I'm just glad to know you. (laughs) So you've just been great, Doc. And it's been such a pleasure to get to know you and work with you. And I look forward to doing more in the future. You as well, Christopher. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being such a great uh, advocate for stroke survivors and for the Heart Association and the Stroke Association. And I look forward to doing this with you a bunch in the future. So this is just uh, take it easy. I'll see you soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone, we've had the honor of speaking with Dr. Mitchell Elkind. He is a vascular neurologist, professor of neurology and epidemiology at Columbia University. And he is also the president-elect of the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. Everybody, thank you so much for listening and watching as usual. Uh, Be safe out there. You know, I love you guys. And remember that there is still a beautiful life after stroke. Life After Stroke is brought to you by Audible. With over 180,000 audiobook titles from new releases to bestsellers, you can listen to Audible on your computer, iPhone, Android, or Kindle whenever and wherever you want. Plus, just for being a listener of Life After Stroke, our friends at Audible are giving you a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial of their service to get your free audiobook. Just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash life after stroke. That's audibletrial.com forward slash life after stroke. This program is not to be used as a way to diagnose or treat any medical condition that you may have. Please consult your doctor or healthcare professional before making any changes to your current medical routine. Life After Stroke is a production of the Hang On to the Dream Foundation, the 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps kids and adults reach their goals in life. If these Life After Stroke programs are helpful to you, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Hang On to the Dream Foundation to assist the organization in its numerous outreach activities. For more information, just go to www.hangontothedream.org. And remember, no matter how hard things seem, hang on to the dream.